electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. The AI arms race poised to enter a new year. CNBC's Steve Kovac is measuring up the winners so far. It's really just Microsoft and NVIDIA right now actually making money. And activates Michael Wolf on how the smaller players can compete. There's an old line that the tech company with the best technologists wins. And that's the difference between what the big guys can do and what startups can do. A war's disruption to shipping through the Red Sea. Director of Harvard's Belfer Center, Megan O'Sullivan, on the latest risks in the Israel-Hamas conflict. This is a very carefully calibrated escalation and response on the part of Iran and on the part of the United States and on the part of the Houthis. Those big stories today, plus the politics of U.S. steel. Google might give you $2 and Apple hitting pause on two of its new watches. You can wear a, like an EKG monitor on your wrist. How often do you check? Whoa, what was oh. <laughs> It's Tuesday, December 19th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market set in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan. Andrew is out today. Hi, Joe. Hey, Bex. How are How you? you? Doing? Good. How are you? I'm fine. You never call me Bex. I'm fine. I'm fine, Becky. Hmm? Yeah. You know, they, they said TV wouldn't be glamorous. Uh, <laughs> You know exactly what I'm talking about. They said it yes, wouldn't I be. Do. They said it wouldn't be glamorous. Little did they know, though. That's right. How are you? Only the best for you. Yeah, I know. Thank I'm you. I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah. Feeling pretty good you here are. in Times nice Square. Nice digs. Nice yeah, digs. Thank you. you look good. Jealous of my lighting? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Meantime, we should tell you, Alphabet's Google has agreed to pay $700 million and allow for greater competition in its Play App Store. That is according to the terms of an antitrust settlement with U.S. states and consumers that was disclosed in a federal court late yesterday. The settlement still requires a judge's final approval. Google was accused of overcharging consumers through unlawful restrictions on the distribution of apps on Android devices and unnecessary fees for in-app transactions. Google will not admit wrongdoing as part of that settlement. Eligible consumers will receive at least $2. $2 you will get if you were part of the people who were injured by this. And you may get additional payments based on their spending on the App Store since the year 2016. Google will expand options for alternative billing for developers and simplify users' ability to download apps directly from, to do, from developers. Do you remember the uh, John Cusack movie, I Want My Two Dollars? You probably don't. It was, I, was it... Uh, it was, uh, his only famous movie was, uh, was Say Anything, wasn't it? With, better uh, Off Dead. That's right. Thank uh-huh. you, Paul, for reminding me. I was forgetting oh, yeah, the better name. Off the, no, the, the one where he holds up the boom box with yeah, Peter Gabriel. In your eyes. In your eyes. The, exactly. Uh, yeah, two dollars. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was a kid trying to get us two dollars for the newspaper delivery. Another anachronism. Two dollars used to be worth something. That would be like three years ago when it was actually worth something. Yeah. <laughs> right. 
I like this. I'm, I'm trying to figure this out. Uh, man, those tricky two, two, two homonyms and stuff. But uh, anyway, Apple made a surprise announcement yesterday uh, to pause, I believe we're saying, to pause U.S. sales of two of the latest versions uh, of its watches. The decision uh, is the result of an intellectual property dispute uh, with medical technology company Massimo uh, over a blood oxygen uh, feature on the devices. That's also a clothing company, and I, I might be Massimo missing. with two letter with two yeah. S's. Yeah, yeah. Clothing so it's, company. It's right. The is this pronounced? Yeah. Is it? I think this one's pronounced Massimo too. Same way, huh? Well, yes. Yeah, I nailed it then. Online sales of the Apple Watch uh, Series Nine and the Apple Watch Ultra Two will pause at 3 p.m. Uh, on Thursday, and will pause in Apple stores after Sunday. Sales at third-party retailers like Walmart and Best Buy will continue. The International Trade Commission ruled against. Uh, Apple in the dispute back in October. The White House uh, had 60 days to review the restrictions, but Apple said it was pausing sales ahead of the December 25th deadline to ensure it's uh, compliant with the order. Apple has said it disagrees with the ITC decision and is pursuing a range of legal and technical options uh, to ensure that the Apple Watch is available to customers. A Bloomberg report says that Apple's engineers are racing to make changes to algorithms on the devices that measure a user's blood oxygen level and present the data to customers. It's an effort uh, to modify the technology enough to appease regulators. And Massimo has said software changes will not be enough. It wants uh, to force Apple to actually change uh, the hardware itself. Yeah, this is a big deal because watches are a bigger and bigger part of Apple's plan and strategy. I think it's something like 5% of the revenue that they bring in right now, but it's the the centerpiece for the Apple health plans that Tim Cook has for the company. Mm. And I don't think they want to be beholden to saying that a portion of those sales are constantly going to go as a royalty payment to someone else. So this is a pretty big deal for them. And why but you don't take have this. one yet? Uh, we, well, Kyle has one. I don't I don't have one that I wear, but we have them in the household. I mean, it, it, the you idea can, of being able to measure the blood oxygen levels right. are a big part of it. You could afford if, one. Yeah, I, I, I don't wear a watch. I don't have anything on my wrist. It's, you know, like one more thing to deal with in the morning. Yeah, I could. You could. I, could. I, I will say that I've considered it simply because of the health aspects of things. If you want to, like, my phone already tracks how many steps I take every day, how many yep. flights of stairs on and on. I can understand the reason for checking things and wanting to make sure as these devices get better and better that, yeah, maybe it's a good idea to have one just to monitor your health down the road. I, I haven't hit there, haven't hit that point yet, but it's certainly something I've considered. I see you can wear a, like an EKG monitor on your wrist even. I mean, that's all yeah. I need, you know. I mean, how often do you check? Whoa, what was, oh. <laughs> I mean, the I'd, hypochondriacs and all of I'd those, be right? feeling things all, what was that? What? <laughs> No, I don't need that. I don't want that. I don't need it. I don't want to know my mood either. You know, usually I know my mood. <laughs> I think I usually know your mood. Usually I know, <laughs> I know my mood. Today, I'm, mood today I think I'm measuring about a 30. What's Andrew usually get? He's usually in the 80s, isn't 80s, he? 80s, I think, is it yeah. for his mood you know, range. That might has. be the high 30s, <clears throat> maybe. Okay. Um, you got a smile on your face. We'll take it. The deal news that we brought you yesterday morning, Japan's Nippon Steel is buying U.S. steel for more than $14 billion. 
in a, in a development on this in a post on X, Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman called that deal wrong for workers and wrong for Pennsylvania. He said he would try to block it. I'm standing on the roof of my home right here in Braddock, Pennsylvania, right across the street from the Edgar Thompson plant. And I just have to say it's absolutely outrageous that they have sold themselves to a foreign nation and a company. Can't do that. Steel is always about security as well, too. And I am committed to doing anything I can do from using my platform or my position in order to block this. Nippon Steel has pledged to honor all collective bargaining agreements with the United Steelworkers Union and keep the headquarters in Pittsburgh. But, Joe, you brought this up yesterday. Uh, this is something the union came out and was very angry that this deal was announced before they had time to weigh in on it. They'd been in favor of the Cleveland Cliff Steel. Um, I think there's 3,700 jobs directly related to this and a larger portion of jobs around that that they're pointing to. I don't know if this is something CFIUS gets involved in, but you do have a U.S. senator. Who I... In just recent weeks or something, I, I don't know whether he's hitting his stride or what, but I don't know. I'm starting to like Fetterman. I don't, I don't know. And, and uh, I don't say that about a lot of... Uh, he, he can't be pinned into anything. Like that's, he he kind of speaks his mind on whatever he comes out with. He's, so much, uh, it, it happens in Washington, it, it, people are so guarded uh, and, you know, looking to see what their colleagues are going to think. And he, he really doesn't, you know, he, he's said a few things lately about Menendez, about the border, about this... Or he's he's sort of broken with the uh, the, the conventional wisdom of, of his party, and um, you know my senators it, get to do that a little more often, but it's it's rare that somebody is this right, outspoken because they don't really ever do any legislation or anything. So they, well, they, they, just, they have more freedom. Uh, to, you know, <laughs> yeah, because they, they got in by, they have a lot of time on their hands. Leadership in the same way. If right. they're not sort of talking and and posturing, you know that, that they've got they can do stuff like this once in a while. Cheese will be next. Coming up next on Squawk Pod, a war's toll on global commerce. The Iran-backed Yemeni rebel group, the Houthis, amping up attacks on ships passing through the Suez Canal. And Maersk, which operates the world's second largest container shipping fleet, has said it would rather go all the way around the Horn of Africa than take the Red Sea risk. Megan O'Sullivan, director of Harvard's Belfer Center, explains more. There's certainly the capacity to establish security corridors in a way that would restore the confidence of big shipping companies. I think what we're hearing from Maersk and others is, okay, show us. Once these things are established, we're going to reevaluate, we remain flexible, but at the moment, we're not taking any risks. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. 
This is Becky's mic. Three, two, one, up and Becky, cue. Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to Squawk Box right here. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square, the Royal We. Now to tensions in the Red Sea and those attacks on ships by Iranian-backed Houthi rebels. Shipping giant Maersk says that its vessels bound for the area that had, that had paused their journeys will sail around the southern tip of Africa instead of going through the Red Sea. In the meantime, the U.S. Defense Secretary announcing a multinational security operation to help protect those ships. Joining us right now on all of this is Megan O'Sullivan. She is director of Harvard's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. She served in a variety of roles in both Democratic and Republican administrations. And, and Megan, I, I think we need to back things up so that people understand what's really happening here. Um, this is a situation where those rebels, the Houthi rebels that are backed by Iran, had announced that they would be attacking ships and warning ships not to stop in Israeli ports and that they'd be attacking any ships that looked like they were sailing towards Israel, correct? Yes, Becky, good morning. That's correct. These are Houthi rebels in Yemen who have uh, vowed to and have continued to attack ships. And they really have made it clear they're going to do it without respect to nationality. It's simply if they're going in the direction of Israel, which is the direction that all shipping goes, that goes through the Suez Canal and goes through um, the canal that is basically between Africa and the Arabian Peninsula where Yemen sits. So this has um, affected already indirectly or directly about the interests of 40 nations. So again, it has been without discretion for which country would be affected. So we, we look at this as a commerce operation, but this is a this is a wartime effort as well, if you're looking at this being something that is trying to prevent anything from getting through to Israel. Sure. I think that if you had asked analysts at the beginning of this war on October 7th how it might affect trade and energy in particular, people might have pointed to the, the Straits of Hormuz, which Iran um, is ad adjacent to and has threatened to close on many occasions. Or you might think about the disruption of actual production if the war escalated beyond Israel and Gaza, which it still could do. But this is a third scenario where you have shipping, not just of oil, but also of all kinds of dry commodities, a very significant percentage of grains um, of world trade go through this particular strait. And as you said, this is um, a tax on commercial shipping, but in a wartime context with a wartime um, a wartime objective, which is for the Houthis to support Hamas. And of course, your viewers will know that the Houthis are supported by Iran. It was very significant when Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin made the announcement of this multinational uh, maritime effort to try to protect these waterways that he said Iranian support for the Houthis and their attacks on commercial vessels must stop. So it's the way for Iranians to continue to do things without being able to be directly pointed at this. They, they continue to say this isn't them. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a very carefully calibrated escalation and response on the part of Iran and on the part of the United States and on the part of the Houthis. The Houthis get their support um, from Iran, but it's not believed that Iran fully controls the Houthis. So there is an element of uh, this is a one arm stretch away. This is not Iran attacking Israel directly, which would um, evoke a, a very Bigger direct response. and serious right. response. This right. is something 
little bit more subtle, the U.S. responding in a calibrated uh, fashion to protect what has been a long time global interest, which is freedom of navigation of the seas, and doing so in a way that hopefully provides deterrence and encourages the Houthis to stop this activity. But it does run the real risk of actually escalating the situation in right. a way that could see the widening of the war. So far, it looks like some of the, the companies, including Maersk, have said, forget it, e even with this offer to defend things and this promise from the United States and all these other nations, we're going to send our ships around the Cape of Good Hope anyway. We're going to go the long way around Africa because they don't want to take the risk. Do you anticipate that even with this move, that it will uh, mean that commerce is really at a stranglehold here? No, I, I think certainly the United States and, well, there are 10 countries that have agreed at this moment to this new maritime um, capacity. I think there's certainly the capacity to establish security corridors in a way that would restore the confidence of big shipping companies. I think what we're hearing from Maersk and others is, okay, show us. Once these things are established, we're going to reevaluate, we remain flexible, but at the moment we're not taking any risks. And so that's why you've seen them make this decision, which increases very significantly the transport time of goods, particularly goods flowing from Europe to Asia and from Asia to Europe. Megan, thank you very much for the analysis this morning. Helps us understand. We appreciate it. Thank you, Becky. Still to come on Squawk Pod, judging the winners in the AI arms race with CNBC's tech correspondent, Steve Kovac. We got to talk about Google, which is still playing catch up to OpenAI and Microsoft. And activates Michael Wolf. Google has gotten very pricey for advertisers yeah. and being for many of our clients is much lower priced. So we are going to see search share move as well as ad share. But overall, it's not going to be substantial. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Joe Kernan along with Becky Quick. And Andrew uh, is out this morning. Just very meager gains uh, yesterday, but gains nonetheless, which uh, would put us, we'd have eight straight, uh, eight straight weeks if we were to, uh, to end up uh, with some positive um, upward momentum this week. A lot of it has to do with what we've seen uh, in treasuries. That was the quickest move up above 5% and the quickest move down below 4 uh, That that uh, that well, Actually, I can remember bigger moves than that, Becky. Back in the uh, back in 87, believe it or not, there was almost a 300 basis point move, I think, on the day of the crash. I, I, I had wow. a, but what, uh, but uh, what percentage was that off, of, off well, a it was, far uh, bigger base? I think too, it was right? like, you know what, it's, it was 1987, so once again, I'm dating myself. And I can't myself. remember... But it, it was, I think it was, I think it was like around nine, it was moving between nine, 10 and 11. That's, that's big. Per, percent, but, yeah. but moving in, I, I remember well, because I had a, I had a client that, that was either long or short 
the 30-year, or, or I don't know, it was either the 30-year or the 10-year, the futures. The futures, they had a big position. And it, I mean, when you see 300 basis point move in, in a session, it was <laughs> is, is really unbelievable. That's but scary. Uh, now we're, what we see, we saw it ran up from about four, four. four and a half up to yeah. above the, five quickly, remember? Yeah. Because Jay Powell, he sounded a little more, he said higher for longer, a little more stridently it went up. And then all of a sudden it, it started coming down quickly on the, a couple of uh, jobs numbers and, and a couple of inflation numbers. And then... Of course, you had all the uh, what happened last week with the real possibility of some cuts next year, and yeah. here we are. I bet that's their expectations too. The Federal Reserve itself, Suddenly. the FOMC. Yeah. Right. All right. There were only a handful of real AI winners in 2023, but more may show their strength in the new year. At least that's the hope for investors. Steve Kovac joins us right now with that story and more. Steve, good morning. Good morning. Yeah. So like you said, very few companies generating meaningful sales from AI this year. And let's be honest, it was really just NVIDIA and Microsoft. After a year of hype and planning, more companies could step on the gas in 2024, starting a new wave of other beneficiaries beyond those magnificent seven we've been talking about all year. On the chip side, NVIDIA is going to have some new competition. AMD already said companies like Meta and Microsoft will be buying its new AI chip. And Intel last week said it's going to sell its own AI chip next year as well. But look for even more activity from the software companies, which will be able to easily incorporate AI into their products next year. A few examples people have been talking about on the street, Adobe, it's selling its AI tool for Photoshop called Firefly. Salesforce has incorporated chatbots into its Einstein AI, AI offering. And then there are cybersecurity companies. CNBC Pro report came out yesterday pointing to a slew of names poised to benefit from new SEC rules requiring companies to report hacks, such as Palo Alto Networks. But the big guys aren't finished. Microsoft said its cloud business growth reaccelerated thanks to increased usage from its partner OpenAI. And it's selling its pricey chatbot called Copilot to businesses. All those companies are paying OpenAI uh, indirectly also benefit Microsoft. So it, there's just a lot going on here. And plus, look, Google, we got to talk about Google, which is still playing catch up to OpenAI and Microsoft, but plans to incorporate more powerful AI models in key businesses like search and workspace and a lot more company coming too. And let's talk about the startups as well to watch beyond just OpenAI, of course, such as Anthropic and the French startup Mistral AI, which just raised a boatload of money. So there's yeah. a lot going on. Still unclear. It's really just Microsoft and NVIDIA right now actually making money, but there's, you know, the there's software companies. Money slashing around. A lot of yeah. people trying to figure out how to make this work. Uh, Steve, thanks. Yeah, sure. Stay with us. For more on this, we want to bring in uh, what's happening on the latest with AI products. Bring in our guest right now is Michael Wolf. He's, of course, the CEO and co founder of Activate. And from an investor's perspective, as you kind of figure this out and try and figure which way to go, do you think this is going to be a situation where the big tech guys are the ones that dominate? Or is this going to be startups that can really take over the scene and be there? Well, this is the race is going to be to start off with. It's going to be between the, the big tech companies. But what's fascinating about it is, apart from OpenAI and Microsoft, they're all going for scale. Essentially, they're going to evangelize before they're going to monetize. So um, Google is giving away, for the most part, to, to people, is giving away their Gemini product. They're going to launch, they've already announced they're going to launch Gemini Ultra. Meta, Meta's Llama 2, which is, which is for the most part open source and, and, and it's free. 
And so, and, and Adobe, yes, Adobe's charging $4.99 for Firefly, which is really the most fascinating to me because it's, it's on top of what they're charging for, for their creative suite. Uh, and they're already implementing and in integrating AI, like automatic fill and other things for, for creators. This, this feels different to me than, than past tech revolutions. And, and that's because there's such a limited number of the engineers who are going to be the ones driving most of the, the right. new and different changes. From what I hear in the background, there's this huge battle to capture the most of these engineers. If you can get them in-house, that's how you win. In the past, we've seen companies buy the startups. Regulators aren't going to allow that to happen. But what Microsoft effectively did was buy OpenAI without buying it. Yeah, absolutely. Essentially, um, they've been able to corner the market and they're getting money out of it in, 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 in really in three ways. One of them is whatever they're, they're selling on um, ChatGPT, Copilot, as was just mentioned. And at the same, at the same time, um, it's, it's not only that, but it's also going to be their cloud service. There, which is which is growing. I mean, the hyperscalers, these companies with large amounts of compute power, they're going to do very well in this environment. Mac and it costs and it costs a ton of money to get that computing power, which is why maybe you have to have deep pockets if you want to play in this game. Absolutely. And to your point earlier about about developers, there's an old line that the tech company with the best technologists wins, mm -hmm. and that's the difference between what the big guys can do and what startups can do. Michael, what about Google? Because you know they're still behind. That Gemini launch was a little messy. I know that the lower versions of it kind of worked out, but then they put out that video where they kind of faked how it actually works. It's unclear, but you know we keep we've been hearing from them for the past I don't know nine or ten or eleven months, telling us you know it's going to be great. It's going to be great. We're going to put it in search. They're still not there yet. They're still behind OpenAI and Microsoft. I mean, is that something to be concerned about, or do, are you confident they can catch up? Well, they're, they're, what they're trying to do is by not charging individuals to use the service, they're trying to get to some level of scale, but Microsoft is way, way ahead of them. And everybody, the street is very concerned the extent to which the first place you go for a search is to, is to chat GPT or other places before you go. And in fact, our firm's research shows there's a large number of people who want to begin their journey on search with chat GPT and then go to Google. But it's not happening yet because, I mean, you know, when this first came out, like Bing, uh, you know, Satya Nadella came out saying we're going to gain market share, right. never materialized, Google is still dominant. I mean, how do they leverage that and incorporate this in the search? Well, I mean, right now, what they're, they are incorporating GPT into, um, in, into Bing. I, I think that the, the challenge for both of those companies is the extent to which they're able to attach ads to, to search results through AI, and we're yet to see that. I mean, their entire system ba business is based on your ability to, as you're searching, for them to, to, to supply ads. Um, we don't know where this is going to go. I, we believe as a firm that it's more likely that people will start their search on, uh, on AI models and IA services before they're going to go to search. Do they, do they rely on, uh, from that perspective, look, Google's in a better position as the search engine of dominance, um, but then Bing has open AI behind it at this point. What's more important to have the open AI or to have the already strong foothold in search where people would automatically go there? Yeah, I, I think that we're gonna see over time some of the traffic that's at Google going to Bing. It's, it's not gonna be huge amounts, but 
a little bit, a, a, a piece of a share of search is worth so much more. And the other piece of this is Google has gotten very pricey for advertisers yeah. and being for many of our clients is much lower priced. So we are going to see um, search share move as well as ad share. But, but overall, it's not going to be substantial versus Google and, and anything else in the rest of the market. But it's a big pot of money, and if you can get a little bit of it, right. is a, that's And you want to talk about too. footholds in the enterprise. Microsoft has the foothold that Google yeah. just doesn't have, and maybe in certain areas, but it's, it's Microsoft. Yeah. And we, we've yet to see what Amazon will do, despite the fact that Amazon has this massive, scaled um, AWS business. Michael, thank you very much for coming in. Great Steve, to be thank here. You. Thanks, Becky. Mm -hmm. Joe, this, uh, this does it for us today, but we'll be back here tomorrow. Oh, please. No. <laughs> no, please. I'm begging you. No, we will. Uh, we will. Anywhere is good. We got anywhere it, Anywhere is good. Anywhere We're is still good. here. We anywhere will. above ground is good. Above ground on the subway, you can always catch the best of Squawk Box on this podcast, as long as you follow us where you're listening now. Once you auto-download, you can listen to any of our podcasts anytime. You can also catch our TV broadcast, Squawk Box, live. Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin host every weekday morning on CNBC, starting at 6 Eastern. Thanks for listening. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.